most of us have never looked at before, but I pray that you would teach us from it today because you said that everything written in your word is to teach us and instruct us and help us learn about you and learn about who you are and what you've done for us. And so I pray that this morning your word would come with power and might. We ask you to touch Michelle, LaVon, and many others who are ill. Lord, we ask you to have your healing hand upon them. I thank you for all the work that Michelle did with this lecture, and I I pray that the things you taught her would be clear as I uh, relay them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, she was so sick, she didn't even give me a joke to share, and I'm not the best joke teller, so we're just going to dig right in if that's okay. I suspect that if we took a poll, not too many of us have ever actually studied the shortest book of the Old Testament called Obadiah. And even though it's only 21 verses long, it contains a powerful message about God's justice and righteousness. And this book reminds us of the danger of the great sin of pride and arrogance, as well as bitterness and unforgiveness. It teaches, about, teaches us about those issues that can be passed on from generation to generation. And the theme of this book is the denunciation of Eden. It was located to the east of the Jordan River, and it went southward from Moab to the Gulf of Aqaba. And on the other side of Edom was nothing but desert for about 100 miles. There were two things that made Edom important. Uh, And first of all, it was located along the trade routes between Syria and Egypt, and therefore they they made a lot of money from trade. They, They got rich by charging high tolls from the caravans that needed to pass through. So the Suncoast Authority is just imitating what these guys did thousands of years ago. The second fact was that Edom had a natural strength and security um, that was character, and it was characterized by sandstone cliffs that that rise a uh, thousand feet above sea level, five thousand feet above sea level, and the people made their home within this natural fortress. The capital city was hidden away in the most inaccessible part of of the sandstone area, and it later became known as Petra. And Michelle's had the privilege to visit there. I have not, but she says it's an amazing sight to behold. How many of you have been to Petra or seen it? Anybody? No? Okay, we all have to look online or in some books. But if we go way back to the beginning of the conflict between Edom and Israel, it starts when Rebecca is about to give birth to her twins. And God told her, two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body, and one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Well, even later in his life, Esau despised the birthright that the eldest son by tradition Uh, had, he traded that for a bowl of stew when he was hungry. Then this hostility between brothers grew even greater when Jacob deceived his father and got the blessing that the older son Esau was expected to receive. So from the very beginning, there's been a lot of hostility and unforgiveness in in this relationship. We later pick up Eden in biblical history when we read about Jacob returning to the land of promise after being gone for many years while he was uh, at Haran and he was working for Laban. Esau came out to meet um, meet him from, from Eden where he'd settled with his people. And later we even see mention of Eden during the exodus uh, of the people of Israel when they left Egypt. 
And they wanted to pass through Edom on the way to the promised land, but the Edomites refused to give them passage, even though Moses promised to to not harm them, to leave everything unscathed, and he even expressed a willingness to pay for any water the people might need. So this conflict that had started centuries before between these two brothers continued to grow as hatred and unforgiveness was simply passed on by Esau to his descendants. Later in history, David conquered the Edomites who were then subject to Israel. And there was always this very bitter rivalry between Israel and Eden, which we see the results of in this book. In the 5th century BC, Edom lost its independence and was controlled by the Nabataeans um, around 312 BC. Ultimately, this is the place where Herod the Great came from. And this area is presently unoccupied, except for some passing Bedouins or military outposts in the modern state of Jordan. It's a place where tourists go, and it's been brought to nothing, just as Obadiah said would happen. So there are at least 12 men uh, in the Old Testament named Obadiah. And not, not a lot is known about the author of this small prophetic book. His name means worshiper of Yahweh. And the, the verses uh, in, in our book don't begin with the background of the man. They don't give us any indication of the time or date that this book was written. Some believe it was written during the reign of Jehoram, about 848 B.C., or possibly in the reign of Ahaz in 731 B.C., Others place the book soon after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So what fits best in terms of trying to figure out the chronology of this book is is stated in verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. So it seems that an earlier date fits best, but if scholars can't agree, I am not going to focus um, our our brief time on these different thoughts and theories. So the book book breaks down into a couple different parts, and the first one we're going to talk about is the destruction of Edom, and that's in verses 1 through 16. And this is the charge. This is the charge against Edom, what they've done. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not only steal until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter." 
Well, the fall of Edom that Obadiah presents in this book is because of the offensive sin of pride. God says in verse 3 that pride and the pride and arrogance of your heart has deceived you. How often we so lightly take the sin of pride that we see uh, in others or fail to see in ourselves as not being that big of a deal. However, according to scriptures, pride is the sin of all sins. One author said this, how difficult it is to awaken even Christian people to an understanding of the real nature of pride. As G. Campbell Morgan suggests, one may stand before a congregation and hold their breathless interest by a recount of dramatic stories of lives ruined by drink or other sins. But try to expound a text such as this from Obadiah, the pride of your heart has deceived you, and there is a marked difference in attention and response. The reason is the fact that the true nature of pride is so little understood. Referring to another person, someone said, he is a good man but proud. Such a remark hardly strikes our ears as inappropriate or even shocking. We are all too willing to admit that goodness and pride may be companions within the same life. But consider this remark, he is a good man but a thief. Immediately we say, hold on, what do you mean? A man cannot at the same time be good and a thief. Yet in the sight of God, pride is as fully bad as stealing, if not worse. So what we need to grasp about pride is that this was the sin of Satan, the father of all sin. It was his pride that caused him to say, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Sinful pride is a desire to take over the place of God or to think that we can do without him. Our sinful pride causes us to think or imagine we can manage our life on our own. And for Eden, it became a national level of sinful pride that was seen in their boasting. First of all, they had what appeared to be impregnable defenses. They were so proud of these. And the word for pride in verse 3 translates to mean to boil up or to be presumptuous or be puffed up. And the Edomites were certainly that. For years, her defenses were not even known to biblical scholars because Petra wasn't even discovered until a Swiss explorer came upon it in 1812. And the city is entered through a very narrow and winding canyon that's a mile long. So as you walk this mile, you see aqueducts and ancient carvings on the walls. There are caves that were homes for the people who lived there. And then when you come to the end of this mile, suddenly you see the first of many magnificent buildings carved in the face of the rock. There's a temple to a false god that's 30 feet above the canyon floor. That would have taken some work to do. And then you actually see Petra itself, which is a square mile surrounded by mountains and the ruins of several civilizations that have lived there. There are homes and temples and treasuries. Uh, And it's said that because of the incredibly narrow approach, this narrow canyon approach to Petra, that it would only require a dozen men to hold it against any army that attacked it. And that was why the people said, who can bring me down to the ground? But God said, Edom will be brought down. Thieves may have been able to sneak in and rob them, as verse 5 says, but with God's judgment, there's going to be nothing left. This nation so exalted itself that they boasted they were better and stronger than anyone else, and they needed no one, especially God. Scripture reminds us that pride goes before a fall, and this is a fact whether it's an individual, a nation, or an army. 
History declares that there have been 21 great civilizations, and each one has passed away to make room for the next. Egypt, Babylon, Greece, and Rome all had great empires that have passed from the scene. In our present day, the great world powers are the Soviet Union, China, and the United States. What a warning Edom should be to us and our nation. Do we boast that we are so invincible and strong? Do we boast about our intelligence and technology? We pray for a heart change and a spiritual awakening in a nation that mocks God and his authority and his morals. Well, secondly, another source of pride for Edom were her allies. All the men allied with you. There was a false sense of security, not just because of the natural fortress of Petra, but also because of all these alliances they'd made with other nations. They were foolish because they failed... Um, to realize that allies often become enemies and betray their former friends. And this is true today. How often do attempts at diplomacy between nations truly succeed? How often do peace talks actually result in peace? Not, Not real often. And Obadiah is making the point that other nations would deceive them. You know, you are in a very dangerous place if you're proud and you believe that you're safe and well because of armies and alliances that you have made. Next, these people also trusted in their supposed wise men. So they trusted in their fortress, they trusted in the alliances they had made, and they also had wise men. And they apparently thought they were smarter than anyone else, and that would enable them to handle any situation that would come their way. They could, do, they could handle that just fine. So it's interesting to note that one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, was from Edom, and he thought he brought great counsel to Job and wisdom, but of course he did not. Jeremiah 49.7 asks, Is there no longer wisdom in, in Teman or in Edom? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? People, the world, believed that the Edomites were very wise, but God took that from them as well, what supposed wisdom they had. They were completely ignorant that their own allies were scheming against them. In the late 6th century B.C., the Nabataeans were welcomed inside the Edomite territory for a banquet. They turned against their ally. They killed the guards. And all these wise leaders, these warriors, this impregnable fortress, were not able to save the Edomites, and they were all slaughtered. The capital, called Teman, was named for Esau's grandson, and that represented the entire nation. It was the incredible arrogance of Edom that ultimately led to her utter humiliation. Her security and wealth would all be gone, as well as her wise teacher's soldiers. All would fall under the mighty hand of God's judgment. There is nothing but false hope for those who think they can find security and strength in their own strength and abilities. Sin is so very deceptive and destructive in the lives of individuals as well as nations. And then the next part we go on to is the crime of Eden. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. 
Don't stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives, and don't imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Well, in these verses, we're given a list of reasons that God's going to destroy Edom. We've seen their pride. Pride always leads to other sins. They had no sense of brotherhood with Israel, and they had an unjustified sense of being superior. So they looked down on Israel and mistreated them. And we need to remember that Edom came out of Esau, the twin of Jacob. The two nations were brother nations, but the mistreatment of Edom toward Israel was so horrible that God brought this judgment. Israel had been told in Deuteronomy 23.7 not to abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. But the response from the Edomites was that they were violent against their brother Jacob. So in the darkest hour of Jerusalem's history, as they were being destroyed, the Edomites became the cheering section for the enemy of Israel. The Edomites had broken the relationship of these two brothers because of the violence against their brother Jacob, and they were going to be covered with shame and destroyed forever. So they were guilty of acting with unspeakable evil toward their brother. They were flesh and blood relatives, and they were not to hate each other. But Edom showed nothing but hatred and bitterness toward Israel through their entire history as a nation. And their sinful pride made them believe they were superior. So what did they do? Well, first of all, they were violent. They'd been cruel, oppressive, and hurtful. And the words violence and brother are in the same verse. And the result was that God said they would be covered with shame. And they were, they were utterly destroyed, as Obadiah said. Secondly, they joined Israel's enemies. They didn't lift a finger to help the people of Israel, who were their blood relatives, and when they were brutally invaded. At first, they just stood by and did nothing, but later they participated in raiding the city, and then they even helped catch some who had escaped, only to turn those people over to the enemy. So Michelle asked the question, what invasion is this a reference to? Well, she thinks it could possibly refer to the time during the reign of Jehoram in 850 B.C. when the Philistines and Arabs sacked the city, or this could be referring to the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586-587 uh, B.C. Uh, as I said before, scholars are equally divided about what is correct. So um, if it's the earlier date that we're talking about, the whole process repeated itself. It happened not once, but twice. God gave them another chance to get it right, and they didn't. So the sin of Edom was that they rejoiced at the calamity and death that came to Judah. Then they took advantage of that horrible death and destruction, and they looted after the enemy had taken Israel away into captivity. And all of this evil behavior has pride at the heart of the matter. Sin left unchecked grows and grows until it becomes like Edom. They were a proud people. They were indifferent to others. They were ruthless in their conduct. And that is the progression of pride. Sin grows from being proud, not caring about others, and that leads to other heartless behavior. God brings up the fact that they stood aloof while strangers carried off the wealth of Israel. How similar are they to the very first brothers in creation, Cain and Abel? God accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And Cain became angry and killed his brother. And when God asked him where his brother was... Cain stood aloof, same thing, and asked, am I my brother's keeper? So they did the same thing as Jerusalem was being attacked by their enemies. They stood aloof. They didn't care. They thought they were getting what they deserved. 
And that's why they even turned those who did escape over um, and ha- delivered them over to the enemy. They gloated about their Jewish brothers being met with disaster. Now, it's easy to look at this and be shocked that people could be so cruel. And yet, how many of us, in our pride, have been glad to stand by and watch people suffer because we think they deserve it? Well, they finally got what was coming to them. And I don't think we truly grasp how heinous the sin of pride is and how powerful it is to lead us down a spiral of other sins. Edom then stopped being aloof. They just they went from being non-helpers to actually looting and killing those trying to escape. And those are the reasons that God is going to destroy Edom. So step by step, the proof has been presenting regarding this people who learned to hate as a way of life and passed it on to every generation to keep that hate active. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, who was an Edomite. Herod the Great was the one who slaughtered all the the boy babies in Bethlehem in his attempt to kill Jesus. His successor Antipas, whom Jesus called that fox, beheaded John the Baptist. So the Herod family wanted the Jewish Messiah dead, and like their ancient ancestors, they were filled with pride and lived for themselves. What a contrast to Jesus who came in the line of Jacob, not from the family of Esau. Well, finally, the second part is Israel is ultimately restored, verses 15 through 21. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Okay, there's the as you sow, you shall reap version in the Old Testament. Your dealings will return on your own head because Just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble. They're going to be burned up. And they will set them on fire and consume them. So there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. So they are going to get, they're going to reap what they've sown. For the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau and those of Shephelah, that would be the south country, um, the, the, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And all and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. Israel's going to take it all over. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So Edom actually illustrates the truth of God's judgment that's going to come on all nations of the world that rebel against God in their sinful pride. The day of the Lord is most often used to speak of the judgments during the the time of the Great Tribulation or the return of Christ. It is the Lord's day when he will return to bring all things under his rule. And what will happen to Edom is a picture of what will happen to all the nations of the world who mistreat Israel. Edom will be repopulated in the future and with other nations will again be under the judgment of God and his wrath in the day of the Lord when Christ 
returns to reign. The judgments that God will bring to Edom correspond to her crimes against Israel. You looted Jerusalem, you're going to be looted. Edom killed those trying to escape, she's going to be killed trying to escape. You handed over those who survived to the enemies, your own allies are going to hand you over. Edom rejoiced in the suffering and loss of Judah, so Edom is going to be destroyed and shamed in her destruction. Obadiah pictures a drunken orgy of conquest like that which took place when Jerusalem was overcome. Edom may have come into God's holy hill along with her enemies, but one day they with the other nations will drink a cup from the wrath of God. The truth is, at any moment, God may set the wheels in motion of his judgment on the nations of the world. We are to keep watch and pray as we await the next event in God's prophetic timetable to begin. Finally, there will be deliverance for Israel, verses 17 and 18. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. So the wrath of God will destroy Esau, but Israel is going to be delivered by God. One day, Israel will be free of all her enemies. It's hard to imagine now when the whole world is lined up with their guns pointing in their direction. But Edom has, even though Edom has desecrated Jerusalem, it will again be a holy place, the land promised to Israel and the descendants of Jacob. And as we've seen in our past studies with books like Zechariah, God's covenant people will finally be set apart to God and they will look on him whom they pierce and they will repent. This will be the fulfillment of Romans 9, chapters 9 to 11, when all Israel will be saved. The Edomites will have no survivors as punishment for how they treated Judah's survivors. Obadiah emphasizes that there is no question about this happening because he says, for the Lord has spoken. God says it, it happens. And finally, the last couple of verses talk about how God will bless Israel. Obadiah closes his short prophecy by describing some of the territories that will one day be restored to Israel. At the beginning of the millennium, the Jewish people who've survived the tribulation will return to their land from all these different lands mentioned, and their territory will be expanded. Most thrilling of all is that the deliverers or judges will govern the people who've occupied the mountain of Esau. Zechariah 14.9 tells us that in the millennial kingdom, Jesus will reign as Lord over all, Israel will be restored as a nation, and she will occupy the land and be ruled by her king, Jesus himself. Every day we move closer to this day actually coming. Nothing is going to stop God or his plan or his program. Okay, so what can we learn from this? That the world seeks after peace, but no human effort will ever bring lasting peace. It can only be found through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Another thing is that just like Edom, one day all the nations of the world will be judged and Israel will inherit the promises that God made to her. Isaiah 63 speaks of the divine warrior coming from Edom in blood, stained with garments uh, on the day of vengeance. Next, we need to examine our hearts and honestly ask the Lord to reveal our sinful pride that deceives us. God hates the sin of pride. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Um, Next, we need to be aware of the sin of bitterness and unforgiveness. It can take on a life of its own, and it influences the families we live with. 
Edom as a people passed on their resentment and anger generation after generations. And that happens in many families. We have people that, in families who don't speak to other people because of things that have happened, and it may go on for generations. We probably have relatives, I probably have relatives I don't even know exist because there was something that happened in the family generations ago, and nobody has talked to anybody, and you don't even know those people are there. Okay, so unforgiveness destroys lives. Unforgiveness is a poison you drink hoping the other person is going to die. So we need to be forgiving. It's easy. The other thought I had this as I was talking with Michelle this morning, there were a couple things that came to mind. And another one is that it's easy for us to take up offenses when other people share horrible things that they've experienced, other th- horrible things that have happened to them. And it's easy to hold a grudge against the person who hurt your friend. It's so easy to do that. But we need to not do that because that poisons you as well. Our flesh loves to keep score with the wrongs done to us and the wrongs done to others, our friends. And we need to learn to forgive quickly and often. And this is something we must learn to do as we grow in our faith. The Lord allows offenses to come. He allows people to sin against us to help us realize the great price it cost him to forgive us. Jesus, who knew nothing but the praise and adoration of angels from the beginning of time, humbled himself, suffered greatly, undeserved, with great sin that was committed against him his entire life. He was sinned against his whole life, and he did nothing to deserve it. He did that to pay for our sins and to free us from the unforgiveness and bitterness that will ultimately destroy us unless we turn to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness and his strength to help us deal with it. So what a gift he's given us this Christmas. And that's what we need. We think about the baby in the manger. That's who it is we worship because that's what he subjected himself to so that we don't have to be trapped and destroyed by bitterness Uh, and anger and pride. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message and for all the work that Michelle did in pulling this together. Again, we pray you'd touch her body and heal her. I pray that, oh, as we're so busy in this season and we're so consumed by pride and aren't even aware of it in so many ways, I, I pray you'd expose the pride in our lives. I, I pray we'd see it. I pray you'd give us the grace to repent from it. I pray you'd show us where we're holding grudges and where bitterness is starting to root in our lives, Lord, so that we could root it out because we don't want to go down the road that Edom went down. We want to be like Jesus and we want to be able to forgive quickly and graciously and leave everything in your hands. And I I pray that that would be very real to us as we celebrate this season of your Advent. In Jesus' name, amen.